talk will be somewhat unusual in the sense that I'm speaking that what I'm speaking about is not directly practically relevant to the meditation we do here so if you just came in five minutes ago please bear with that part and if you have been here for ten days please bear with it too it's about bodhicitta, the altruistic, compassionate attitude of a bodhisattva, according to the Tibetan tradition. And um, maybe just this one word, which I might be using a few times for people who are not actually English speakers. Altruistic means concerned with others' welfare. Now talk about the reflective contemplations that are used to develop the attitude, that attitude and quality of mind, that wish or determination to go on on one's spiritual journey for as long as it takes until all beings are liberated. That means quite a while. And though it might have no immediate relevance to our meditation approach here, I hope that it can give some inspiration and perhaps also a way of pointing out possible avenues of spiritual practice. Many of you have done years of practice. Perhaps it might be interesting to hear what other traditions or other practitioners do There are a few difficulties that can come with this presentation of this practice. And there are points that that we can make into a problem, something which turns us off, instead of an inspiration. And I just want to mention them so we're aware of that. Some of these reflections, like the first two, three, work with the very Buddhist assumption that there are past lives and that there is rebirth. And for this one time, I'm not going to qualify these statements each time they come, but simply present things in that traditional way, okay? You can just listen to it without the need to take it at face value if you don't like it. It's okay, don't have to. I'm not selling it. Just something to share. And the second problem that can arise is that um, it's all presented in a kind of traditional classical form of development and progress. Sometimes it strengthens the sense that who and where we are is not good enough. Again, I didn't change that. I'll just present it the way it's presented in Asian tradition. And the third point is that the practice aims at very high ideals. Again, this can quite easily create the sense of inadequacy in our Western minds when we 
compare and then start thinking that's how good we should be and you know where I am that's really ridiculous so just to make you aware of these three points my suggestion is that you simply listen when something rings a bell welcome it when it creates a problem or makes no sense just simply drop it okay to generate bodhicitta the wish to practice and to be of help until all beings are liberated which is what makes one's practice into a Mahayana practice or a Bodhisattva practice a whole range of different meditations are used now first if we build a house we have to first set a strong even foundation similarly for the development of bodhicitta we first need a solid even base that base is a sense of equality in our relationship or in our way of viewing all the different living beings instead of experiencing beings either as friends enemies or those we feel indifferent towards we develop an attitude of even friendliness for all by reducing our attachments to the friends our aversions to the enemies and our indifference to the rest this is attempted first of course through the general reduction of attachment and aversion that comes through wisdom in our practice as Christopher pointed out last night but in addition it is done by certain reflections or contemplations as follows if we consider all the countless lives and lifetimes since beginningless times imagine back back over the years we see that each and every living being has been in every possible relationship to every other being having appeared in so many forms we have been related to each other in so many unthinkably many different ways our greatest enemies at other times must have been our best friends in countless other lives since lives are lifetimes are beginningless they must have many times been so close to us that our happiness was completely depending on them actually even in this life we can often observe and experience how <coughs> close friends or even lovers can become enemies or vice versa it sometimes happens within hours or even minutes we look at whole groups or whole nations we look at the world history politics we see whole nations go through the shifts so grasping 
as someone as being being our enemy somehow intrinsically doesn't really make sense. It makes even less sense when we consider that the suffering we experience through these so-called enemies is really the result of our own unskillful karma, of our own actions. We think they did it to us, but really that difficulty can only be experienced by us because somewhere in the past we caused the conditions for it. So we can't even really blame them for whatever they do. On the other hand, of course, the reverse is true for our friends. Our best friends at other times have been our worst enemies. They've abused us and hurt us and even killed us in many different life forms we took. As animals at times, they probably even devoured us. And until the day we will be free of this, this cycle of birth and death, this will happen again and again. It's hard as it is to imagine. So why should we consider these people as so much better than others. The confrontation with and the exploration of these realities can help us to let go of our projections of enemies and not let go of our aversions. And it can help us equally to readjust our vision, you know, sometimes like these pink glasses that we there with respect to our loved ones and thus loosen our attachments. In a similar manner, we can then remember all those countless beings who leave us indifferent, whose happiness and pain leaves us untouched. They have helped us and cared for us in the past and they will do it again in the future. Even now, at times, it only takes a few words or even just an eye contact to create a close link or even a relationship. Actually, in retreats, I think we have ample evidence of this happening, isn't it? So it's quite inadequate and improper not to care for some beings and to ignore them. I think for me, the Tibetan Lama Thup Nyeshe was an incredible example for this, for someone who's living this practice. It seemed with him that whoever met him, even once, somehow was convinced that he or she had this special connection with him. Like that's how people would talk about him, even if they just met him once. There was this sense they're trying to tell you that you know he really likes them more than anybody else they're really special and that was because that was true hit it in a way and it could be people he just saw the first minute of his life there's that quality that nobody was really indifferent to develop this sense of equality to its all beings, of course, 
takes a lot of practice. It is the basis for the next steps and further development along these lines. The next step, very interesting one, is to see all beings as one's mother. When we consider all our past lives, since beginningless time, we see that all beings at certain times in certain forms must have been our mothers, right? I say it again. We consider all the infinite past lives. Then we will, any other being, you know, looking back over all these lives, at some point must have been our mother. Now this is what is being contemplated again and again. Of course, obviously this contemplation can only be very effective when we are convinced that we really are wandering through the cycle of birth and death since beginningless time. And it's obviously much easier for Asian Buddhists or Hindus to work with that. So we contemplate in this way until we actually see all beings as our mother. When we meet our mother, you know, she comes around the corner, we immediately recognize her. Oh, you know, here comes my mother. When we meet any sentient being and immediately recognize that being as our mother, that's when we have completed this practice. You know, the door opens and here comes, oh, here's my mother. It takes a lot of practice. <laughs> it is said that it's really complete when we see a dog or a frog, for that matter, in the same life. In this life, we are the child of a human mother. Sometime in the past, we were the puppy of a dog mother. The relation is the same. So you start to see a lot of mothers around in here, out there, everywhere. Out in the pond, you know, mothers coming into the kitchen, taking the bread or, you know, taking things. Mothers up in the trees, mothers coming out of the earth when you work in the garden. Qualitatively speaking, there is a big difference between the first contemplation of the equality of beings and this one here, to see, seeing all beings as our mother. The first creates an inner peace and balance or equanimity in our relationship with beings. The second one creates a sense of closeness and connectedness already. And the next step is to remember the kindness of all beings. <clears throat> it's not sufficient to see all beings as our mother. We also want to remember their kindness. What's best is to, f to first contemplate the kindness of our mother and in that way of all our mothers. 
she took great care while she was pregnant. She forgot the pain of giving birth the next moment we were born and was joyful and happy about us. Often she felt as if she had found the precious treasure because she had us. We were totally helpless without any control over our body functions or about anything. She cared for us. She fed us with quite some enthusiasm and endurance at least. We're still here. And very often when she looked at us and when she spoke our name, she even might do that now, she did it in a very special way, you know, this kind of sweet way, caring way. And yet her laugh wasn't the response to something we had done for her, but simply the expression of her love and compassion. <clears throat> it was the obvious thing to do for her. She's helped us untiringly and endlessly. Some are still doing it now for us. And in many ways it's because of her kindness that we're able to develop a lot of the qualities we did develop. And of course, here comes the Western mind, of course sometimes she was a drag too. But her general attitude was always one in favor of our well-being, even if sometimes that was not so skillful. And it was without expecting that much compensation or reward. So, starting to recognize the kindness of mothers, meeting all these mothers around, we become aware of a lot of kindness that has been offered to us. And as I pointed out in my last talk, we can see that we're also completely depending on all other beings, in all our needs, in all that we are. All other beings who also have been our mothers. We depend on them for our survival, our food, our clothing, our comfort, our pleasure. We're constantly and totally dependent on their work, their achievements, and so forth. When we look what it takes for a piece of clothing to be at our disposition, depending on what the material is, maybe it takes sheep, it takes shepherds, wool factories, textile and clothes factories, and all the work and all the people that involve or we can look at what it takes for a piece of bread for breakfast in terms of people and work that's involved. As I mentioned before, it takes the miners and the agricultural machine manufacturers and the farmers and the millers and the bakers and the shopkeepers and the people who do the shopping and the cooks. And it takes, again, all this mother beings who do all this work for us to get what we need. It's an endless chain of these beings, their work and effort. And of course, again, we can say that they're not 
they're not doing it for us. Nevertheless, the advantage and the benefit we're getting anyway. That's why we wish to generate a sense of gratefulness and appreciation for them. And we reflect on ways and means how we could return and repay their kindness. Since all beings would like to be happy and free from suffering, we might start to try to become aware of their troubles and difficulties and see what could be done to free them, helping them to get what they need and what they wish and desire. That's really what the practice of a bodhisattva is all about. And it starts to come in at the point of equality, seeing beings as our mothers, recognizing their kindness and generating the wish to repay their kindness. When our attitude opens in that way and widens and our scope widens in that way, that is what's called bodhisattva practice. We could say that our usual style or a usual style of Dharma practice is like the bright sun rays that come through some opening, some window, or somewhere into a room, and it gets bright, and we can see things, it gets clear. Bodhisattva practice is said to be like the sunlight that floods the whole planet. It's vast. It's bright. Then on the next level or stage, we work on the equality between ourselves and others. We reflect and contemplate on the fact that we ourselves don't wish to have any pain whatsoever, any suffering whatsoever. Actually, not even the slightest, if we can do without, fine. When there's food to eat, we certainly would like to get the good parts, hopefully as much as we would like, at least as much as we need. We certainly wouldn't want to go hungry or suffer shortage or even starvation, very obviously. And very obviously, too, we'd, we would rather have happiness and joy than having pain and depression. That's exactly how it is for every other being, too. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, it's obvious. And yet to think about it is quite interesting. They, too, each one of them, wishes to have nice food, nice things, no shortages, plenty of what they would like and wish and what's needed. They don't like to die from starvation. They'd rather have happiness and joy than pain and depression. And even though it's so obvious to us, 
it can be very powerful to think and reflect about this, about this obvious truth, just to recall it. Furthermore, that's an interesting kind of twist of thought. We're one living being. Others are many. So why should we care more for ourselves, who are just one, than for others, who are so many? It doesn't make sense at all, does it? Or if we look in ourselves, the hand takes care of the wounded leg, even though the hand doesn't suffer the pain of the leg. It can feel quite all right when the leg is hurt, and yet it will be caring for the leg, even though the leg suffers. When others suffer, we want to be helping, even though it's them who suffer, not us. Just as the hand and the leg belong to one and the same life, so do I, myself, and others belong to one and the same life. And the helping seems to be a natural thing to do. I used to think that uh, what should do it for me was sort of the convincing power of this uh, seemingly logic, logical statements, and I never did it. And, but my teacher insisted too that it was the practice, the contemplation and practice of repeating these thoughts and reflections that would make a difference. So obviously we could actually find the reversed logic probably to prove something else. But what is interesting is to see that certain ways of contemplating these realities has a powerful effect on our attitudes. Then one is supposed to contemplate again and again on the disadvantages of an attitude of cherishing oneself, meaning the disadvantages of egotism, and the benefits of an attitude of altruism. And again, we don't have to think much about that. We, I think it's one of the reasons why we're here. We're convinced that, uh, you know, disadvantages in egotism and advantages in, in cherishing all beings. And it seems quite obvious, but thinking about them can still clarify this further for us like thinking about the fact that coming from a place of preoccupation with self, our life becomes more narrow, more uptight. Being entangled in the movements of greed and wanting one develops an inner atmosphere of poverty, even when one has a lot. One is constantly preoccupied with protecting, confirming, defending, inflating, gratifying the sense of self. And there's really very little joy and happiness in one's life with that attitude, even though that is what one wishes to get through that attitude. 
On the other hand, there's a sense of openness, of inner wealth and abundance and joy with the attitude of cherishing others. The Buddha described the positive effects of practicing altruism and loving-kindness in a sutra. He says, one sleeps well, one wakes up joyfully and has no bad dreams. One is loved by humans and respected by the higher beings. One is protected by the devas, the gods, and neither fire nor poison nor weapons can harm one. Pretty good. One gets easily concentrated, it's interesting, and has a serene demeanor. And at the time of death, one doesn't fall into confusion. And if one has not yet attained to complete freedom, one will be reborn in realms of happiness. Also, Shantideva, the great Indian Bodhisattva and poet, wrote about it. Whatever joy there is in this world all comes from wishing others to be happy. And whatever suffering there is in this world comes from desiring oneself to get what one wants. And he continues, but what need is there to say much more? The child is just work for their own benefit only. The Buddha's work for the benefit of others. Just look at the difference between them. The point I think that's really made here is that even from an egotistical point of view, we simply want what is best for ourselves and we don't care about the rest. Even then, egotism doesn't make sense. It's self-defeating. It doesn't make sense. It's exactly the altruistic attitude that brings us most happiness, that brings us most peace and most joy. The next one practice is exchanging oneself and others. First it was equalizing, realizing that People have the same wishes and needs and hopes and fears as we do. And it's exchanging oneself and others. What one does is that, and this is a, a method that, again, this Shantideva introduces. He says, one observes and judges and criticizes others just the way one does that quite often in a non-dharmic manner, perhaps with envy or pride or ambition or whatever. But doing so, one puts oneself in the place of the other and looks in that manner on oneself. So it's, we sort of stay judgmental as we are sometimes, but then place ourselves in that in that person's situation. So it's a whole reversal of perspective, which uh, can be quite um, strong in its effect to, to turn around our habitual ways of looking at others. But perhaps more simply, we can just put sometimes 
ourselves in the place of other beings. Like <clears throat> putting oneself in the place of the person one has an argument with. If we have just a moment to, just before or as we speak, whatever we say, perhaps with some intensity, just take a moment to get a sense of how we would feel on this other side to receive that. It comes an interesting shift of perspective. Perhaps one can place oneself at the place of one's boss or perhaps the place of one's subordinate or the place of a mosquito on one's arm just before this big, huge hand comes down. You picture it from that side. Or I imagine with this weather, the slugs moving towards the garden vegetables. It's just, I don't know if one's supposed to do that when one has a garden. It would be interesting to just put oneself for a moment in, into that position. Actually, you know, I don't know how it is, but sort of going very slow, you know, and the vegetables are still far away. <laughs> <laughs> You're trying to get there. Just take that place for a second or two. Doing that before we speak or before we act or before we hit. <clears throat> can bring about quite remarkable changes. So it's here where the practitioner's attitude starts to change quite dramatically. After the first step of equalizing friends and enemies, and the next step of generating closeness and connectedness, one now, so to speak, steps over the dividing gap between self and others if there's still one left at that point. Then compassion and sympathetic joy become natural. Then one begins the practice of what's called Tonglen, taking and giving. It's a much praised method in the Tibetan tradition. What one does is one imagines oneself, one's own self-cherishing attitude, one's egotistical attitude as a black spot in the heart chest area. Then we visualize all sentient beings of all the different realms of existence and then generate the wish to free them all from suffering. And then as we inhale, we visualize all their physical and all their, all their mental suffering in the form of black rays coming into ourselves, being absorbed in that black spot, which is one's egotistical attitude. And then one sees all beings now having become free and happy. And all the suffering now is on one's own self-cherishing attitude. I think it's important not to imagine it being it on oneself, but on that attitude. And then next, we realize that all beings like to be happy and generate 
a sense of love and generosity in us, and as we ex- exhale, we visualize all our happiness, all our positive and wholesome energies and tendencies and qualities as radiant white light touching all these many sentient beings, all these mothers, and giving them physical and mental happiness and joy. So we take the suffering and give happiness and joy. Tong Len, the practice of taking and giving. It's quite a, in a way, demanding type of contemplation that requires some practice again. But it's also very powerful and a very effective method. It seemed that my Tibetan teacher, Geshe he could never quite understand how one could do this anapana, this mindfulness of breathing, when one instead could actually practice Tonglen. He would listen to what I was doing with awareness of breath. He said, oh, very good. It's also good to do Tonglen. <laughs> there are many complex variations to the Tonglen. Visualize taking away the hunger, giving food. I had one lama, he had come to Switzerland just recently, so he saw all these supermarkets. And he was amazed, seeing all these vast uh, lines with food. And he said, you take their hunger, and then you visualize, you offer meager shops. That's what they're called in Switzerland. Big supermarkets full of food to all your mothers, so you can get really into all this visualizing. Taking away their ignorance, giving wisdom, the whole range of, of um, difficulties one takes and, and benefits one offers. It's this practice, Tonglen, that creates the wish and the aspiration for a direct, actual altruistic engagement. This development leads one to the stage of the supreme wish. Recognizing that it's actually up to us. Good thoughts, wonderful visualizations, loving kindness and compassion meditation, they're very essential as practice. But they're not enough to actually change and improve the situation of the living beings. Tonglen can be very effective for oneself, but for the beings it isn't enough. So it means that we have to actually begin taking responsibility. Since it was us who received the kindness of the beings, it was us who received and received even still the kindness of the mothers. Why should we leave leave it to others to repay their kindness? So it's up to us. But to do this very well, we might be lacking the wisdom and the power necessary. It's fully liberated and realized beings. It's Buddha who have the best means to really help actively and effectively over endless periods of time. So that becomes our direction 
and our aim. And it isn't the direction out because of self-interest, but rather out of connectedness, out of deep compassion with all that lives, with all forms of life, with all mothers. At that point, bodhicitta has actually arisen. That's the birth of a bodhisattva. That's what's really meant by bodhisattva. And to be on the Mahayana path is actually, the real meaning is when one, when any being in this world, Buddhist or not, having heard of this or not, has somehow generated that pure wish, then that's what's meant by a Mahayana path. And this is the vow, or perhaps the inspiration, we could say, of a bodhisattva. Sentient beings are numberless. We vow to save them all. Inner conflicts are endless. We vow to end them all. The teachings are infinite. We vow to master them all. The Buddha way is inconceivable. We vow to attain it all. And here the Indian saint and poet Shantideva gives a strong image of the attitude of a bodhisattva. And I think that's important, especially for us, so that we don't look upon this as a big burden, but something that comes, not because now we should feel like that, but it comes when one has developed all those qualities. He says about the attitude of a bodhisattva, because he loves to pacify the suffering of others, the bodhisattva enters even the deepest health joyfully, just as a wild goose plunges into a lotus pool. Get the picture. Because he loves to pacify the sufferings of others, the bodhisattva enters even the deepest health joyfully, just as a wild goose plunges into a lotus pond. like to sit quietly for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.